0: Welcome to the sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church in downtown Bentonville. If you have questions related to what you hear today, or just want to find out more about the ministries at First United Methodist Church, please visit us online at FUMCBentonville.org or check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok.
1: That song, uh, Word of God Speak, Ken mentioned that they were going to be playing it this week, and I, was, I was said, oh, I'm so glad, because that is the song. That I listen to every Sunday morning before I come in to do worship. Um, And that is my hope. That it is not my words, but the word of God that speaks in the midst of it.
0: I got to say it was really nice to actually hear that as well. One, it's always wonderful to have have those Holy Spirit moments. Mm -hmm. But also she comes in every Sunday morning while we're in the middle of rehearsal. And She's wearing her headphones, and I'm like, does she just not want to talk to us? <laughs> <laughs> but no, she's, she is listening. and. Yeah.
1: Music is how I prepare for what I'm doing here. And, and a lot of times the band is so good that I, I have to take my headphones off and at least peek around. In fact, really, that's, that's every Sunday, but I still have the headphones on because I have to hear that song. That song centers me for this work ahead so with that in mind i'm now going to read from the word of god and this is uh from genesis this is chapter 11 verses 1 to 9 all people on the earth had one language and the same words when they traveled east they found a valley in the land of shinar and settled there they said to each other come let's make bricks and bake them hard they used bricks for stone and asphalt for mortar They said, come, let's build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. And let's make a name for ourselves so that we won't be dispersed all over the earth. Then the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the humans built. And the Lord said, there is now one people and they all have one language. This is what they have begun to do. And now all that they plan to do will be possible for them. Come, let's go down and mix up their language there. So they won't understand each other's language. Then the Lord dispersed them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is named Babel, because there the Lord mixed up the languages of the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them all over the earth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts, our minds, and our eyes, that we might see and know the word you have for us this day. In your holy name we pray. So the last Sunday in August, we are starting an ambitious project. We are going to read through the Bible as a congregation. But in order to prepare for that, there's some things we need to know about reading the Bible. Because it's not something that's easily undertaken. It's a powerful and transformative um, thing to do to read through the Bible. Uh, But it kind of helps to have a little bit of background on what you're doing Um, before you do that. So these three weeks leading up to that, we're going to do some preparation around that. And we're going to deal with some frequently asked questions that I get as a pastor when it comes to reading the Bible. And today is the most frequently asked question I get, which is, which translation is the best translation? Now, in order for us to address this question, I think we need a little bit of translation history. And for some of you, this is going to be stuff you already know, but for a lot of people, this is stuff they don't know at all. So, for instance, the original text of the Bible is not in English. It is a common misconception, believe it or not. Uh, And so uh, it's good to know that the, the, the works that we have in the Old Testament are written in Hebrew. And part of Daniel is written in Aramaic. And then the New Testament is all written in Greek. And then there is another translation that you need to be aware of, which is a translation you might have heard of called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew parts of the Bible, because remember that, that the, the people of Israel were overrun by the Greeks and then taken over by the Romans, and the Romans were like, eh, everybody speaks Greek, we'll just keep that. Um, Greek was the language of the whole empire. And so there were many people who were Jews who did not read or speak Hebrew. It had kind of become a language of the scholars. And so in order to make the text accessible, they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek and added some other books like 1st and 2nd and 3rd and 4th Maccabees and Esdras and George and the dragon, you know, Bell and the dragon, several, several others that are in the Catholic Bible. All right. Those were written in Greek and were considered part of the Septuagint, okay? And when Paul especially is quoting the Hebrew scriptures, he's not actually quoting the Hebrew scriptures. He's quoting the Septuagint, which is already a translation of the scriptures. And in fact, most of the time that that the New Testament talks about the works, when they say scripture, they mean the works that are in our Old Testament. When they're quoting those, they're quoting typically a work that's already in translation from Hebrew to Greek. Okay, and that translation happened about the third century BCE. Now, then we start getting the the Greek New Testament written down, and it comes about and it starts getting written down. We start getting the Gospels in the mid, well, we know we have Paul's letter in the mid-first century. The Gospels come a little bit later. We do not have any of those manuscripts from the first century. We only have copies from a couple hundred years later. And they're all, a lot of them are written on papyri. And we actually, so some of y'all know, I got to do confirmation on the road this week, which was amazing. We had so much fun. I woke up on Saturday morning. We, we came home Friday. I woke up on Saturday morning sad that I was not still on this trip. I mean, it was so wonderful. Uh, but one of the things we did was we went to Bridwell Library at Southern Methodist University, and they have a phenomenal special collections um, uh, department in their, in their library. And we actually got to see and touch some pretty amazing things. So I'm going to show you this first picture that we have was, there you see McKenna Gigliotti there. And she has before her a 6th century papyrus of the book of Romans. Um, So we were actually able to look at that, and we could see that it was written in Greek. And so that's what we're dealing with when we're putting together the New Testament are things like that. And we have a lot of them, but they're all kind of assembled, and they're not Xeroxed. They're hand-copied, and with hand-copy comes a lot of variation, shall we say, all right? So that is what we're working with when we deal with that, and that is what the, the New Testament it was written in. In about the third century, a man named Jerome undertook writing the, translating the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into Latin, because Latin was the language of Rome and becoming more and more the language of the empire. And that is called the Latin Vulgate. And many of you have probably heard of that. That was the authoritative book for the Catholic Church until Vatican II in the 1960s. So from the 300s to the 1960s, the Vulgate was the authoritative scripture. We got to see a couple of versions of the Vulgate. We got to see the Paris Bible. So if we'll look at the next picture. So that's the Paris Bible. This is the first time the Bible is actually ordered in a consistent way and then made available for people. Now this is pre-printing press. So this is all still handwritten and it was handwritten on parchment, which is um, lambskin. So, um, so we got to actually sit there and, and play around with the the Paris Bible and the Paris Bible is important because like I said, this is the first time it is ordered in a consistent way. And that Bible is from the 1200s. All right. And then, um, the next like big moment in Bible history for the Bullgate is the Gutenberg Bible. Many of you have probably heard about that. So you can look at the next picture. Um, The Gutenberg Bible is the first time it's printed on a press. Uh, Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press. And that, now we're going to get consistent um, type. So um, Sophia Gigliotti is looking through the, um, I think they have 31 pages of a Gutenberg Bible. So we got to to see that. Y'all, I was so nerding out. I don't know how much the kids knew what they were touching, but I'm like, y'all. This is a Gutenberg Bible. This was the first thing printed on a printing press, right? So, um, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. It's amazing. So, uh, so that's what we have then going forward is it's still being taught and, and preached in Latin. And this is all the way into, well, as I said, the Catholic Church kept it up until the 1960s. The Protestant reformers came along and said, you know what? the only people that know latin are the priests and the scholars so they're standing up here reading the bible and then telling us what's in it and we can't the people can't know if that's true or not this word of god should be available in the language that the people speak so they started getting vernacular translations and that's when we actually got to see a wiklified bible so um, that's right there. Wycliffe um, was. This is the first Bible in English, um, and it comes about in about the thirteen, thirteen, fourteen hundreds, right in there. And he was in so much trouble for translating this Bible into English that even though he had died, the church dug him up out of the grave and took him out of the Catholic cemetery and burned his bones and threw them in the river. It was, it was illegal uh, to say the least to translate the Bible out of Latin into English, into Spanish, into French, and people did it anyway. And some people were burned at the stake for it. Some people were burned after they died for it. Um, this was revolutionary and we take for granted, I think the fact that we can just go anywhere. I mean, you can pick up your phone and Google a hundred translations and people took a huge risk doing this. Now it, it, it became more and more acceptable and that's where we get the King James Bible. So get the King James. And I got to say something about the King James, because this is the one I run up against all the time. Because this is where people will say, I read the King James because if it's good enough for Jesus Christ, it's good enough for me. And I'm like, Jesus, nah, I didn't even speak English. Probably does now, but you know, nah, not at the time, right? Um, and so uh, the King James Bible was commissioned by James the first of England. Um, it was commissioned like every biblical translation with a particular aim. And his was to promote his understanding of the faith. And he's caught up in this battle between the Catholic Church and the Church of England. So he's got a very he's instructing the translators to translate it in a very particular way. And they translated it all pretty much into poetry when most of the Bible is written into prose. Now, I will be the first to admit a lot of the things I can only hear them with the King James. That's the only way them they sound right. Psalm twenty-three. The Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, he leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Ten Commandments, thou shalt not. There there are certain passages. The the story in Luke, the Christmas story in Luke doesn't sound right, except in the King James, thanks to Charlie Brown. I mean it's true. That's where I heard that story all the time. There are some things, and it's an emotional thing, and I understand that, and I understand the attachment. The problem with the King James, besides the fact that like every translation, it is loaded with somebody else's politics and theology. But it was written in the 1600s, and we have discovered so many more um, of those papyri, and found some that are older, and found some that are truer to the story. And the King James has stayed in the 1600s. And even the new King James is just an updating of the language of the King James. It does not take into account these new archaeological discoveries that we have. And so that's that's one of the main problems with using the King James. Now it's also important to understand then the types of translations that there are and why why there are, there are good things and there are bad things about each type of translation and it's good to know that. So there's There's what's called a literal translation and a paraphrase translation. And a literal translation, as much as possible, tries to translate word for word from the original language into the language that it's being translated into, as much as they can. Now, there are always going to be some problems with that, because some concepts are really hard to translate across languages, okay? And some examples of a literal translation would be the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, the NIV, the New International Version, the CEB, the Common English Bible, are all uh, literal translations. Then there are what's called a paraphrase translation, which is taking roughly um, what what the, the passage says in the original language and kind of putting it into a way that people can really grasp and understand, but not sticking so much to literally what the text says. An example, probably the most popular one of that is the message. That is a paraphrase translation. Okay? so. A lot of people love the message, and it speaks to them. It's very powerful. Just understand that's the kind of translation that it is. Then there are also the difference between a Bible that's translated by an individual and a Bible that's translated by a committee. Um, An example of a Bible that's translated by an individual is the message. Eugene Peterson translated that. There is another um, translation. I meant to bring it up here with me. It's called the New English version, and it was translated by one man. And it's a pretty good translation, but at one point he has a woman getting on top of of a donkey and honestly breaking wind as she gets on the donkey, this strange little story that literally no one else in the whole history of translation translates it that way. (laughs) <laughs> now, that's not to be said that he's not right. He might be right because we do co- cover over some stuff and make it cleaned up. I can tell you, come see me sometime and I'll tell you some things that are cleaned up in the Bible. Um, if you're over 18. Um, but <laughs> but uh, but it's just weird. Like out of nowhere, he puts that in there and makes this whole argument about it. That's the trick with, with a translation that's done by an individual. They got nobody checking them. Right, They can put whatever they want in there. Then there are translations that are done by a committee. And these, again, are like the NIV, the CEB, the NRSV. Um, And those have a, a lot of conversation around the decisions that are made about translation. And that's a good thing generally. But just be aware, they're still coming from a particular commitment. This common English Bible that I just read from that I prefer that I use was commissioned by the Methodist church and several other mainline denominations. So I like it because it lines up with my theology. It's in approachable language, but it's also lines up with my theology, but I'm also aware it lines up with my theology. So it's a good thing to look at something like the NIV, which is, which is um, uh, commissioned by an evangelical press and look at their perspective because every trans, every um, translation is an interpretation. You have to make some choices on things. Ask the people that, that helped translate Acts 2, that project that we did. We made choices and with every sentence. And you have to do that. And there, and it can still be dangerous. There is a translation called the Douay Rounds tradition. In practically every Bible, Genesis, uh, Genesis what is it? Three in Genesis 3, after the woman has eaten the fruit, it says, and she turned to her husband who was with her and gave him the fruit. Which means that the whole time that, he, that the woman's having this conversation with the snake, the man is right there with her. Right? So he at any point could have said, this is not a good idea, but did not. However, the Douai Rams drops out who was with her. And when they were challenged on it, they said, it says it in the Hebrew Bible, who was with her. And they said, we felt that was an insignificant detail. Uh, Right? No, it is not an insignificant detail. It was a detail that kept women at fault solely for what happened in the garden. So you got to watch the translation. So, So when people ask me which translation is the best i'm going to tell you there isn't one some are better than others like i talked about the king james is standing still in the 1600s so it's got some problems because it's not got the oldest manuscripts now uh, figured into it some are better than others but there's no one best version all of them have their merits and all of them have their problems but I will also say when you undertake reading the Bible, there shouldn't be just one. Please use your, your phone and look up Bible Gateway, which has free, a free listing of all these different translations. And, and especially if you come across something that seems weird, read it in two or three translations and see what it says. See what's going on there. And then if it still seems weird, there's going to be lots of opportunity for conversation around that. Um, please read that. And, and also read it in community. And that brings us to this why I chose the Tower of Babel story for us today. Which is that God never wanted us to have one language. God never wanted us to have one language. God never wanted us to be one people. The very first command that we're given in Genesis one twenty seven and 28 is be fruitful and multiply. Not be fruitful and clone yourselves. Be fruitful and multiply and fill all the earth. And what do we try to do? Be one, stay all together, stay in this one city. And God says, that's never what I wanted for you. It's never what I wanted for you. I wanted you to be this beautiful diversity of language and culture and people. And he did the same thing at Pentecost. Didn't make everybody speak the same language. Made everybody understand each other's languages. Because I'll tell you, my friends, the truth of the matter is, we're trying to figure out who God is. And who we are in relationship to God. That's the point of this story. And we can't capture God in one language. We can't capture God in one translation And we can't capture God from one point of view. So read in community. Read in translation. Read all together. And maybe, just maybe, we'll get a glimpse of God. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to the Sermon Podcast from First United Methodist Church in downtown Bentonville. If you would like to let us know you were here, follow the link below to connect. To participate in worship through giving, you can give online at fumcbentonville.org or on Venmo at FUMC Bentonville. FUMC Bentonville welcomes all. Because we believe the communion table is God's table, we invite everyone into our church family. We welcome and celebrate every race, Gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, marital status, age, physical and mental ability, national origin, economic station, and political ideology. We come together in action and outreach, aspiring to follow Jesus' example of radical hospitality, love, and grace as a transformative movement in our community. Please join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m., both in person and on Facebook Live. All are welcome, and we'd love to have you with us. Grace and peace.